0: Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, managing partner of ACG Analytics. The following podcast is a lightly edited version of a policy call we held. We will now proceed with the call. Yes, this is David Metzner, the managing partner at ACG Analytics. Welcome to today's Sovereign Call as we're going to examine the withdrawal of capital from emerging markets the threat of a potential spreading debt defaults across the globe caused by remarkable three things happening at the same time. We have the withdrawal of capital, falling oil prices, of course, costs of the spreading coronavirus. Helping us to dissect this today, we have the ACGA team, which consists of Chris Zerwinski, our senior analyst, author of the very well-read weekly macro report that comes out every Tuesday. We have Bart Oostervelt. Bart uh, joined us from the Atlantic Council, senior advisor, was with Moody's uh, Sovereign Risk for many, many years over in London. We have Gabby Efesa, our chief operating officer, and we have our good friend Larry McDonald, the chief executive of the Bear Trap Reports. So Larry has spent a good part of his career analyzing macro markets, and in particular, uh, he has seen other similar moments in history. We're going to go back and, and revisit his lessons in the emerging market space. For further uh, information about ACG Analytics and the work we're doing during this crisis, please follow us on Twitter at ACG Analytics. Please feel free to contact us directly. Maylie Wong is our research concierge. She is Wong at acganalytics.com. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Zerwinski to lead the discussion.
1: Thanks, David, and uh, thank everybody for joining us today. As, as you mentioned, David, we've seen you know, unprecedented action around the world in response to the growing coronavirus crisis. This has included massive stimulus and relief bills, in addition to a lot of action from central banks globally, uh, including entering the corporate bond markets and showing up market liquidity. At the same time, uh, we've seen the you know, historic outflow from emerging markets, which were already on shaky ground pre-crisis largely uh, due to a combination of dollar strength and low commodity prices but there's a lot to unpack here and i'm happy to have larry and bart here to uh to help me explain it so first i want to talk about some of the fed and central bank policies and, and the actions that have happened worldwide over the last few weeks there has been you know an acute dollar shortage but the fed has eased some of this through the programs they've enacted or expanded some of this has included swap lines with other central banks and then even earlier this week we saw a temporary repo exchange between the fed and foreign central banks for u.s treasuries i want to turn to bart here can you can you briefly explain a little bit about those two facilities that i mentioned or any other color as to um you know what the fed has done for the last yeah, few weeks yeah sure thank you chris so let's talk
2: about the swap lines first so this, the fed has revived all the swap lines that had opened during the global financial crisis and expanded the number of countries so you have to think here about countries like canada Central Bank of Denmark and and the European Central Bank, major global central banks. In addition to these lines, you're right, yesterday they announced a FEMA repo facility that uh, allows foreign central banks to temporarily exchange their holdings of U.S. treasuries, which in many cases are significant because that's where central bank reserves are held, uh, for U.S. dollars uh, at the New York Fed. Uh, so for central banks that have foreign reserves, they can, they can draw down those reserves to meet dollar demand, and it's fully collateralized in the sense that these are repo facilities that commit to, to and dollar denominated. The Fed does not take credit, for it, credit risk or exchange risk. This was an important additional policy action, uh, Chris, because there's a near-sudden stop and and a flight to safety and a flight to the dollar, which means that a a large number of governments and and private actors, uh, companies, banks, in emerging and frontier markets can't access dollars right now. And and the risks are quite acute uh, for governments whose refinancing needs uh, are reliant on, on foreign currency. That group is much bigger than can initially be assisted by... For example, IMF and World Bank initiatives. So while the IMF and the World Bank are focused on the IDA countries and, and frontier markets, this can affect you know the refinancing risks uh, are major in the number of sovereigns where default risk isn't meaningfully priced in yet. Everyone from Bahrain to Montenegro, Costa Rica to Turkey to Tunisia. So in that sense, it's complementary to IMF and World Bank efforts. It also helps the the stability of the treasury market because it reduces the need for central banks to dump their treasuries into an illiquid market. So all in all, it it gels well with other global efforts. It helps the stability of the treasury market. And hopefully, in, in selected cases, can can relieve pressure on on some of these emerging and frontier markets.
1: It, it helps, in, in essence, you know, the plumbing of, of the global system. Larry, I want to bring you in just for a little bit of a market perspective as to the significance of the repo facility and you know accepting treasuries for dollars. Maybe you um, can give us your point of view.
3: Well, there's been a macro cabal. That has been pounding the table for the last six months on the global dollar shortage. And this cabal is both research based and hedge fund based. It's a posse and there's a number of people that have had this trade on through euro dollars and through rates, euro dollars and, and being long the dollar, right? So this is a big axe, very what we call axe trade, very large. And the thesis that they've had is that the dollar the dollar shortage, and that as you go risk-off, as we've been through risk-off moments throughout the capital markets for the last 100 years, uh, every time we go risk-off in a big way, there's a flight to quality with the dollar. And so this group is really the beast inside the market. They've been pushing it, pushing it, pushing the dollar, and as the dollar has strengthened, it's breaking the back of leveraged emerging market countries. But as David Metzger and I have been working together for over a decade, and David and I – and really, he and I worked on, on this point together. The ultimate accelerant of policy, the ultimate wide and lighter fluid is systemic risk. So a policy path that the Fed may have or like this repo facility, something that may take two, three, four months can take – literally six days if there's enough systemic pressure and that's why i think that this repo facility as well as the swap line he the fed behind the scenes attacking this cabal and if the cabal keeps pushing the trade there's a beast inside the market there's a serpent in there they, they, these guys have been printing money with a lot of hedge funds that has this trade on and my view is the Fed wants to, to, to break these guys, and the Fed, the Fed knows that the IMF and the World Bank are going to be left picking up the tab at the restaurant if they don't put out this fire. Because if the dollar keeps getting pushed, we go into a massive default cycle. We have corona plus dependent risk,
1: and therefore,
3: Bill, the IMF and the World Bank are going to have to pick up. It's going to be larger and larger and larger.
1: And, Larry, I I want to go into the IMF in a second, but, you know, it's something you've emphasized to me many times, and, you know, it kind of is in line with what you just said about beasts in the market. You've emphasized that the Fed balance sheet expansion will continue long after the market bottoms out. So, you know, if that's the case here, then... That indicates a weaker dollar in the future, no? Yeah, exactly. The,
3: the only way out of this, is, we've done the math here at the Bear Trap Support, ACG done the math. The global financial accelerates on a positive basis on a weaker dollar is absolutely, for a multiplier effects, one of the most powerfully positive forces. So if they can get the dollar down to a 92, 90 handle, every single... Remember, we've seen this show before. Remember, okay, in 2013, The Federal Reserve promised us that they were going to taper in March, April of May, okay? Guess what? I had dinner with Jeremy Stein, who left the Fed. I had dinner with him maybe six months after he left the Fed. He told me when they designed that statement, okay, of the taper which caused the tantrum, they thought it would have mild impact. It had a colossal impact. EM blew up. The Fed literally had to change their entire policy path. The taper that was supposed to happen in the second quarter Push, push back to the third, fourth quarter. So the entire agenda of the Fed was broken by the beast in the market. The emerging market credit address changed the Fed policy path. It was completely altered. So that's what, what's going to happen again, is there's too much stress on, with Corona plus the dollar, the Fed behind the scenes doing whatever they can to every creative measure under the, the sun to we can miss dollar. And don't fight the Fed when it comes to a weaker dollar. You're going to get a weaker dollar here in the next six months. I'm pounding the table
1: high conviction. And then ultimately, that means that you're going to see flows return to, to EM.
3: Exactly. And that and that gets back to the most important point of the call. For the last three years, as David and Mester and I and ACG, we've done multiple calls on Brexit. we had Nigel Farage. David's team at ACG led trips into Europe, meeting with labor. So we've had Brexit stress. We've had with we've had trade wars, all these things, and now Corona. All these things drove upwards of five, six trillion dollars came into the United States, hiding out from global stress. And now all that money, the next year is going to flow out. Two, three trillion dollars is going to flow out to the rest of the world. And oh, by the way, guess what? China, South Korea, Europe went into this three months before the U.S. They're going to come out first. So you have this trillions of dollars of stimulus around the world. These countries would infer, Florida, Florida now, but so just now is finally announcing measures that Europe announced and, and Asia announced three, four months ago. So the U.S. economy comes out of this last, it wouldn't last. The global economy, when it's in crisis first, it's going to come out first. So when the global economy comes out first, that's a very, very positive thing for global assets, negative thing for the dollar.
1: Yeah. One of one the risks then that needs to be sorted out in order for parts of the economy to get back on a level footing that we, we need to mention if we're talking about this is, you know, the impact of the Saudi-Russia oil conflict. Considering the positions of both economies, Larry, and I know you've talked about this before, Russia, at least to me, if anyways, appears better suited to wait this out than Saudi. But, you know, a confounding variable in this is that Saudi credit risk is increasing. Larry, do you think that that influences whether or not they come to the table in the short term on output versus the longer term?
3: Absolutely. In 2016, we made a, a bullish call on oil in February, January, February. We were in some pain in February because we flew too early. And one of the main reasons was, remember in 2015, on Thanksgiving, the Saudis pulled this move, 2014-15, where they they thought they could put the shell companies out of business. They increased production. We had a bunch of defaults. And the credit risk of Saudi Arabia, this country's burning 100 billion a year, maybe 150 billion a year. The cash burn. They only have 450 billion of reserves. So they're burning tons of cash, and there's no question that the financial stress of this coronavirus, which is the miracle when the Saudis when the Saudis threw the first punch at the Russian, this was like two three weeks before the the peak of the of the market stress. Yep. So they they probably underestimated. it. So yeah, I think that. And don't, don't forget, Harold Hamm wrote a billion dollar check to his ex-wife in a divorce. Is, yeah. Like, well, this is exactly
1: <laughs> where I wanted to go next, and and I wanted to bring in. Bart again here for a little bit of political color from D.C., you know, do you think that the Trump administration is starting to step in? And is that something that you see in the short term? And, you know, now that the first three stimulus bills are passed, the administration has a little bit more bandwidth to focus on this. Under normal circumstances, this Saudi-Russia oil conflict would be top of the stack for the administration, right? An unprecedented crisis. Now, they have a little bit more bandwidth to address it. Bart, are you seeing them actually move to do
0: that?
2: Yes. And let me get to that. It's at the moment, you know, it's just a very unwelcome source of additional instability. And at this price of oil, this is not a stable equilibrium side. You do see the first signs that it's really starting to irritate the administration. And uh, you will all have seen the the involvement of of Trump himself and Dan Burlett in in the past few days to. Try to to try to change this. In a lot of countries, this now becomes a quadruple shock. So you have the public health crisis, you have a collapse in aggregate demand, you have acute market volatility, you can't access dollars, and then you combine a sharp oil price decline and you know generally low commodity prices. So now they go down the list, but it, everyone is affected. The, the large emerging markets, Mexico, the other Latin commodity exporters, the GCCs. And a whole range of, of emerging and frontier markets whose profiles were weaker going into this, and you know everyone from Oman to Iraq. So, and given how overwhelming this, the other aspects of this shock are—the the, the Corona crisis, balance of payments crises, the collapse in aggregate demand—even countries that normally benefit from lower oil prices, the energy importers, Turkey and the like—this uh, is a band-aid on a gaping wound. So, it's it's really not doing anything for anyone, and like I said, not a stable equilibrium. You will all have seen the final uh, the bankruptcy filing of Whiting Petroleum this morning. My understanding,
3: okay Chris, keep in mind I'm on the swap line. So let's get some numbers down. So during the Senate when, when I when I wrote when I wrote my book, um, one of the things we talked about was the swap line in 2008 and how that was a big fire hose, right? So in 2008, U.S. swap lines from the Fed reached 25 percent of the Fed's balance sheet. 25 percent. The current swap FYI, line Larry, I want there. to get
1: back to to Bart's point here, but go ahead and and uh, and, and make your point here.
3: Yeah, no, just quick. Yeah, so, so the current swap line is like five percent. So the point is, is that you have you know, trillions more of bandwidth of a fire hose from, from the Fed if they go back to the size of the swap lines in 2008. I see.
2: Thank you. The final point on the, you know, the involvement of the U.S. there's so a direct conversations between Russia and Saudi this morning. Uh, my understanding is Victoria Coates, the special energy envoy is also on our way to Saudi in, in the next few days. So I, I think given how unwelcome this is at the moment and, and a major irritant in terms of finding some stability in economies and in markets, an intervention in some way by the U.S. administration is imminent, and I would base my decisions on that.
1: Okay, and then you you talk about the disruption to commodity exporters, and obviously a lot of these countries are going to go to the IMF, for example, once they begin to cease some stress. Do you have an idea as to how many countries are reaching out to the IMF so far? And, you know, I guess the second question is, how much firepower does the IMF actually still have? Because, you know, for example, and Larry, I know the point you make is that Argentina just took up a huge, huge amount of funding from the IMF. You know, what? how much can they actually put forward at the moment?
2: Yeah, uh, very
1: important question.
2: Look, the IMF is facing requests from almost half of its membership at the moment and has a significant firepower, a trillion dollars in lending facility, a number of programs, emergency financing programs, catastrophe relief programs. They can make existing programs bigger. They can enter into new financing arrangements. All these tools to to help. I have to say, it is one thing to help a whole bunch of low-income countries with their, you know, the fiscal shock related to the corona crisis. If we then layer on a number of balance of payments crises and potential sovereign defaults that include an IMF program, capacity of the IMF would have to be be up. I say this because the, what they've done so far in direct response to uh, Corona requests, you know, in the public domain, they're in talks with Haiti. They've helped Honduras under an existing standby agreement. That's $243 million and will help Honduras significantly. So those amounts in the larger scheme of things compared to a trillion dollar lending capacity are small. They did the same thing for Kyrgyzstan, the credit facility of, of $400 million. So public health crisis related to Corona spending, helping the just to the fiscal shock with, of the public health crisis, the resources are ample. It becomes what Larry I think just called Corona Plus, you know, a, a wave or a significant amount of additional calls that also have balance of payments features and/or sovereign default features. It, it, it will need you know a significant increase in its uh, in its capacity.
1: Yeah, and and some of the things like the U.S., for example, authorized more funding for it as part of the stimulus bill and. And so so there is money coming into it, but you would be looking for for more down the road.
2: Yeah, I, well, a trillion is, what, a bit more than a percent of GDP globally. A trillion, you can could, you could do a whole lot. But, you know, if you look at the largest sovereign defaults in history, you mitigate even a, a part of that, you get to a trillion quite quickly.
3: Yeah, so and then sorry, that brings how, me to – How does that work? So Congress, approves, Congress approves the new funding, right? And then, when does the cap? When, when when does the treasury actually send money over to the IMF?
2: Congress? Approved a doubling from 243 billion to 500 billion of loan assistance program. My understanding is a series of other other parliaments also still have to approve that. Congress was early and was praised by the IMF for taking a leadership role and encouraged other countries to approve it. So that that timeline is uncertain. Though I imagine with the coordination now happening at the G20 that that will come through quickly.
1: And Bart, then I want to move into Argentina real quick just because I mentioned it and it obviously is first and foremost on a lot of people's minds right now. We did reach the end of March, which was the Argentine government's informal, formal deadline to present a formal offer to creditors. And Guzman has said now that he hopes to present a formal offer very soon. And those are his words. What does very soon mean to you and what are you looking for right now in terms of the relationships and the dynamics between the creditors, IMF, and and the government itself? Yeah, I, I think
2: Argentina is at the early stages of the public health crisis. So that's that's one observation and has taken fairly aggressive measures early on. So that's in, in terms of where they stand in, in, in dealing with the coronavirus impact. The minister has expressed that, you know, given the overall adverse economic and market environment there, they have a high level of urgency around resolving the debt. What I think that means and where you know if you look at his presentation, if you look at the IMF research that's been published in recent weeks, Dealing with Argentina, what I think that means is that an, an offer may be coming, actually, in, in short term. That's quite harsh. So let's, in, in round terms, call it a 50% haircut, which is the the average for sovereign restructurings going back 30 years. And they'll say they're in a hurry. They will have some economic data, probably, and an economic plan to to back up that urgency. The one thing that we've been writing about a lot, Chris, we've been publishing about, is that the government financial position in the next four or five years. Is quite dire, though the gross financing needs after 2023 drop quite sharply. So it's also a matter of debt coming due in the next three, four years to, to the private sector, to multilaterals, to the Paris Club, and to the IMF, most importantly, that that is, is very front-loaded. That's uh, something to keep in mind that, you know, you can you can look at this in a variety of ways. You can say, look, it's a short term, almost like a liquidity problem. You can also look at it and say that the economy is in quite dire state and the impact of this coronavirus is yet unknown, but likely severe. And in addition to immediate Sharp relief. We need something that that is meaningful over over decades, which is where I think the government. Yeah, will the,
1: come out. There are plenty of other countries that I want to get to, including, you know, systemic risks from places like Turkey and in South Africa. Talk about Lebanon, Ecuador. All of these are are interesting, and I think that we'll get there in the question and answer. But I do have one more question and in, in topic that I wanted to talk about, having to do with Europe. We've seen large-scale intervention from the ECB and relief packages from from individual countries already. For maybe we can talk a little bit, Bart, about the likelihood of leveraging existing mechanisms such as the European Stability Mechanism (the ESM) versus issuing Corona bonds, for example, in order to fight this public health crisis in Europe. Which do you see more likely, and, and perhaps? you know, why and explain a little bit about the internal divisions that exist and, and are largely similar to the divisions that existed during the European debt crisis. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Very important question. So they they weren't able to agree uh, last
2: week, both on public health solidarity and economic assistance. The EU's track record so far is, is very weak to the point that it's causing permanent change of, of perception of the EU and large member states such, like, uh, such as Italy. So last week, first, the finance ministers couldn't agree on on how to provide more assistance economically than the heads of state and government couldn't agree. You're right to point out that the divisions are roughly the same as those during the European debt crisis. France and Italy and Spain and uh, six other countries thought this was the right moment to, to push for a, a safe asset in the form of Corona bonds, which is Euro bonds by a different name. Germany and the countries that normally follow Germany, including Netherlands, Austria, posed that it got to be quite a bit more bitter than even during the crisis. And the finance ministers have been sent back to come up with some other proposal by the Given the urgency of the public health crisis, the most expedient thing to do would be to use the ESM, which is sitting on 410 billion euro of capacity, and deploy it rapidly as the technical wherewithal, as the position in credit markets to issue meaningful debt instruments to, to support this. And you could do this with, with limited conditionality. Once that is done, it could raises the spectrum of using outright monetary transactions, which was the tool developed at the end of the European debt crisis and never used by, this, by the European Central Bank. So that is the most expedient the the Netherlands and Germany opposed. such use, I think that would still be my base case, that they'll come to some form of instrument that either a new instrument that uses the ESM for execution or just outright use of the ESM with limited capacity uh, with limited conditionality. I I don't think Corona bonds are seriously on the table anymore, uh, and it would take a a, a U-turn
1: from Germany to do that, and I don't see that as being in the cards. Just to, to make the point then, obviously you need consensus moving forward, because individual countries can block so that in this crisis right here, let's say, you know, Germany were to take the lead, that would, that would be what is required here to get countries like your mother country, the Netherlands, on board.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, a lot of countries will go the way Germany goes, but that list of countries that object to mutualization of debt is, is longer than people see in the press. You know, all the Baltic countries would oppose that, for example. It is an important thing eventually for the euro to have a safe asset. If, they, if the EU, for example, wants to increase the international use of the euro, that's an important policy measure. I don't think it can, it can come off the ground anywhere near as quickly as is needed given the public health crisis. So it's, it's the wrong solution for the wrong problem at the wrong time.
1: Okay. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us on the call today and including Larry and Bart. And, of course, David Messner and the rest of the ACGA team. This is an unprecedented time, as, as Larry said, and the unthinkable can quickly become reality. During this time, please reach out to us. David already gave the Twitter handle, at ACG Analytics. Of course, also reach out to our research concierge at research at acg-analytics.com. We're happy to field any questions. We're monitoring the implementation of this third release package, and we're very closely watching how Congress goes about crafting the fourth package, perhaps something in a compromise on infrastructure, for example. So with that, thank you very much, and I hope you all have a good day.